It looks like we are all situated. You know, we should be on the Hebrew slide here, guys. So let's move that back, Kassar. Um, one of my most favorite movies of all time is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay, let's this. Sometimes, you know, the people have raised their hand if you're five years or older, raise it. How many of you have seen it like five times or more? How many of you have seen it like maybe ten times or more? How many of you have seen it like twenty times or more? Carrie, a hundred times? <laughs> I don't know how many times I've seen it. I, I think it's a, it's a great movie. Uh, it's especially appropriate this Christmas season coming in. Um, you know, it used to be such that uh, it was played like 50 times during the Christmas season. Uh, I, I heard recently someone got the rights to it and played it only once or twice. I'm not exactly sure. It's a great story. Peter Bailey, depressed with life, an honest man, and uh, he reaches a midlife crisis, thinks he doesn't have anything worth living for, has little to show. Um, yeah, we're having problems up here, huh? How about you just turn it off, SR? In fact, we're going to do this. We're going to shut this off. So you can pay attention to me and not to that. Ha! It's like... All right. He preached the point of depression in his life. An angel comes to rescue... What's the name of the angel again? Clarence comes and rescues him. And uh, he's about to commit suicide. And and, um, Clarence comes and says, No, your life's worth living. And Peter Bailey says, No, I wish I'd never been born. And Clarence kind of, Okay, all right. You have your wish. You've never been born. And if you remember... Without the life of George Bailey, his brother never would have won the Congressional Medal of Honor because George wasn't there to save Harry, so Harry wasn't there to save those people in the ship. Without the life of George Bailey, the pharmacist, remember his name? Mr. Gower, right? Mr. Gower, um, for whom he worked, would have been sent to prison for poisoning a child because Peter Bailey wasn't there to stop him in in his anguish and drunken stupor one night. Without the life of George Bailey, the town of Bedford Falls would have had a new name. It would have been called what? Pottersville. Named after Mr. Potter, the mean Scrooge of a man. Without the life of George Bailey, his wife Mary would have spent her lives as an old maid in the library. Eventually, George realized how great his life had been, all because of an angel, a friend who had showed him what his life would be like without him. Had he never been born and Clarence, right? When the bell rang, what happened to Clarence? He received his wings, right? It's a great movie. It's driven me to tears of joy on several occasions, but it's bad theology, all right? Um, And I think you understand. I think you you know that. But I do know that uh, many times people in our day and age see angels as weak and joyful and pudgy and naive like Clarence is depicted. Right? They, they, we see them as, um, as I've said, precious moments figurines, kind of nice, softy kind of uh, angels who don't have any, um, any real power. They get their wings by helping others in need. But sadly, this is how many people think. But the problem in the first century when the Bible is written is a little bit different than our, our problems today. Rather than seeing angels as weak and, and needing us really to help them earn their wings, instead... They understood angels rightly as powerful beings who could do great and awesome things, who could slay armies of hundred thousands in a single night. Angels who were the invisible force behind many military victories. Angels who were always constantly before the awesome throne of God, seeing God in His unveiled holiness and majesty. Angels can see that and can endure that. In fact, there were some in the first century who were so infatuated with these mighty beings that they actually worshipped angels. Colossians 2, verse 18 describes that. And the battle facing the early church was really to put angels down in their proper place. And, and the whole discussion here in the book of Hebrews, at least chapters 1 and 2, has a place with Jesus. Now, does he, is He lower than angels or is He above angels? Where exactly does He, does he fit in these things? In the battle of the writer of the book of the Hebrews was to put Jesus above the angels, though many at that time saw the angels above Jesus. That's the historical context behind our text this morning. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We've come to chapter 2, verse 10. We find ourselves in the middle of an argument. He's showing how much greater Jesus is 
than these powerful, majestic beings we called angels. And in fact, the argument has been carried on since chapter 1. Verse 4 is the key to all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, that Jesus, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the angels. Throughout the rest of chapter 1, seven quotes from the Old Testament talking about how great He is. He says in verse 5 that He is the Son of God, whereas angels are merely servants. Jesus is worshipped, whereas angels are the worshippers. Verse 8, Jesus has a throne which all the angels merely are servants kneeling at the throne around Him waiting to serve. Jesus is, as verses 10, 11, and 12 say, the Almighty, infinite, everlasting Creator where, Jesus, where the angels, as majestic as they are, are mere creatures who bow to Him. Jesus is the only one to whom it is said, You are My Son. Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, in the, the days of the New Testament was written there, people were saying, Really? Is that really the case? Is Jesus really higher than the angels? They said, that's fine and well, but, but can that really be the case? I mean, because the people in the first century either saw Jesus or they knew people who had seen Jesus. And as they saw Jesus, they saw Him as a mere human being, a man who lived among us. And they saw and they knew Jesus died a painful death on a cross. If He were so great, the question comes, would He have suffered like this? If He were so great, would He have been crucified like this? And really the question comes, if Jesus is so great, then why did He have to die? Why was He inflicted with so much suffering? And what's interesting is that those who say such things or think such things about the crucified Jesus don't realize that the sufferings of Jesus, far from being an objection to His greatness to bring Him down, are actually the means by which His greatness is established. The only way Jesus could have saved us, to be made like us, to be one of us, to die for us. He never could have saved us in the heavenlies cheering us on. You know, Jesus is up there at the right hand of God saying, Come on, go for it. You can keep doing it. Keep serving God. You're going to be okay. Come on, keep doing it. He could never have done that. In fact, that's a little bit what like, the law did. The law was encouraging people to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law was telling people what to do and how to do and how to do it. And you know what the end of the, re- the result of the law was? Just showed people their sin. Jesus couldn't have saved them from afar. No, he had to be incarnated. He had to become one of us. He had to say, he had to, as verse, chapter two, verse nine says, taste death for everyone. He had to go suffer and die and taste death. And that's really the the, the issue that chapter two, verses five through eighteen, are are all about is about the incarnation of Jesus coming into the flesh. It's a great text for Christmas time. In fact, last Christmas. I spent a whole week here, Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18, talking about the incarnation of Christ, the importance of it at Christmas time. That's, that's what it's all about. Last week, we looked at verses 5 through 9. I entitled my message, Lower does not mean lesser. In his incarnation, Jesus certainly was lower than the angels. That's what chapter, five, verse, chapter 2, verse 7 says. You've made Him for a little while lower than the angels. But lower doesn't mean inferior. It doesn't mean substandard. It doesn't mean worse. It doesn't mean lesser. Because in the ages to come, things are going to be reversed. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says that we will judge angels. There's going to be a time where that's all reversed. But now, human beings, we are a little while lower than the angels. We are less powerful than angels. We are confined to space and time unlike angels. We are prohibited from visiting the heavenlies like the angels. We don't just move about in the spiritual realm like angels do. We are lesser, but in the age to come, we will be crowned with glory and honor because our King, Jesus, our Savior, our Captain, our Leader, our Pioneer, has been crowned with glory and honor. And that's the point of verses 8 and 9. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Here in the days of creation, right, we don't rule the creation as we ought. But, here's what we do see. We do see Him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. In other words, the path 
of Jesus was a path of humiliation first and exaltation later. Or those of you who are around in our study of 1 Peter, you remember, it's not humiliation and exaltation. It is what first? Suffer now and glory later. What Jesus accomplished is our path to life. Jesus became lower that He might receive the crown of glory. He tasted death that we might live. He suffered on the cross that we might enjoy the pleasures of God forevermore. As Psalm 16 verse 10 says, He may appear as being lesser than the angels because He lived on earth for a time, but in reality He's much better than the angels. He's much better. Now, it's not surprising that the writer of the Hebrews had to deal with the meaning of the incarnation, the suffering of Jesus. Because many of the Jews in that day saw angels as great beings, certainly. But also think about this. The Jews stumbled at the cross of Christ. This was the very point in which the Jewish people stumbled of of thinking about a Messiah who had come to suffer and die. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. In the early days of Christianity, the biggest difficulty that the Jewish people had in believing their Messiah was that Jesus was crucified. That was the biggest difficulty that they had. That wasn't a part of their expectation of Messiah. They thought that the Messiah would come and rule and reign and conquer the Romans and sit high and lofty over everything. And they had scriptural proof for this. They had verses like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 in their minds. Another great Christmas verse. For unto us a child will be born, unto us a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to His increase of His government or of His peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom. Everything ruling and reigning under the feet of the Messiah. That's their expectation of Messiah. And, and Isaiah 9 isn't the only passage in their minds. Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, among many others that speak about the Messiah coming and ruling and reigning in His kingdom. And then for the Jews to imagine a defeated Messiah upon a cross was really too much for them to bear even though Isaiah 53 prophesied of that. Still, Jewish people stumbled at the embracing of Jesus as the Messiah. And so it only makes sense that the author to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, would write about the incarnation of Jesus. Write about Him becoming flesh and blood. And that's the issue addressed right here in chapter 2. How can Jesus be better than the angels if He suffered so much? You know, we often place suffering in a category of undesirables, don't we? I mean, think about your own life. Which of you like to suffer? None of us do. We work hard to avoid suffering. Right? When people are sick, what do we do? I'm going to stay away from them. We don't want to get sick. We want to distance ourselves from the poor. Don't want to get too engaged. We want to seek our own comfort. We want to build our own kingdom. We won't confront people in their sin because of the discomfort that will come back to them. I've done that in recent days. and I'm not on someone's real high list right now because of, of speaking to them in love and kindness. But listen, we seek our own comfort. I'd rather not confront. I'd rather seek my own comfort. We place... Suffering in the category of the undesired. And in fact, I think we see many of those who are suffering sometimes as second-class citizens. I want for you to imagine somebody coming in the back door right now um, in a wheelchair. How, how would you treat them? Would you show a special compassion to them? Or sometimes people in a wheelchair, you kind of step off. You know, our country has done a great thing to make everything handicap accessible. And we work as a nation real hard to lift them up because the tendency is to put those people down. If someone came into our congregation you know, with rheumatoid arthritis in their hands and kind of limping, maybe an eye, uh, how, how do you treat the person like that? I just know our natural tendency is to treat them as a second-class citizen and that not ought to be. All humans are created in the image of God and we can just easily look down upon those. 
You know, there are entire theologies that cultivate this perspective as well. Health, wealth, prosperity gospel says if you're suffering, it's because of your own sin. You don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering right now. So all those people who are suffering are seen as weak Christians, right? Second class believers who, who don't have enough faith to conquer. I've heard of pastors who visit their flock in the hospital. And, and rather than comforting the sick and doing as Job's friends did, the best thing he did is just quiet for seven days and just weeping with them and just caring for them and praying for them and helping them. They instead exhort them and tell them, well, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. And I've heard stories of pastors leaving who's got this theology about conquering and it's just if we believe enough, we're not going to suffer. It goes diametrically opposed to Hebrews chapter 2 and Christ. And how suffering of Jesus didn't show that He was second class in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. It's interesting the suffering of Christ is the very thing that brings us to glory. And so His suffering was a great thing. Well, let's read our text this morning. I know I've had a long introduction. But we're going to read it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> he says, It was fitting for Him, for whom all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Those are some tough verses, alright? Let's just, let's just put that out on the table right, right now today. They're hard verses, they're complex verses. And uh, regarding my approach this morning, what I, what I want to do is something different than I normally do. I want. I want to like bring you into my, my study. Um, I don't have this morning a nice polished three points and a poem at the end. All right? I don't have that. Um, what I have though is some Bible study skills that's just going to look at this passage and just ask a bunch of questions about what, what this means. Any good Bible student will learn to ask questions about the Bible. will learn to read it and just say, What's that for? And oftentimes, it's the surprising things that actually are the most edifying to us. So what I have, I have, I, have, I think it's 11 questions I'm just going to ask of this text. Now, some of those questions would be a little bit on the obvious side. Some of those would be, frankly, quite difficult that I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to answer for you. But, but I do want to help this morning just more or less to show you a way how to study the Bible. So, it's different than normal, but it's going to be okay. So, my first question really comes here in verse 10. What's the main thought of verse 10? What's the main thought of verse 10? You know, in studying the Scriptures, one of the best things to do is to see this complex sentence. Because verse 10 is a very complex sentence. And to be able to reduce it down to see, okay, where's the subject, where's the verb, where's the direct object? What's the simple flow of thought and, and anything that modifies it? Kind of just um, ignore that a little bit so you can say the simple flow of thought. And in some sense, it's, it's easy because it starts right here in verse 10, right at the beginning. It was fitting. That's the main thought. It was fitting. It was appropriate. That's what it says. It was fitting. And then you look at the, the next phrase. For Him. All right? That tells who it was fitting for, but that really doesn't help us. In terms of the main thought, it says it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Well, this just further identifies who it is that it was fitting for. Then you come back here again. It was fitting in bringing many sons to glory. Okay, that, that's, that's telling a little bit about the, the sphere of what it was fitting for, the end result of what it's fitting for. It really doesn't help the, the main thought here. So come back here. It was fitting to perfect the author of their salvations through sufferings. And there's the main thought. It was fitting to perfect Jesus through sufferings. You see that there? I hope you do. It's what God it was fitting, was natural for God to do. It was fitting to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So on the one hand, I think we know what that means that it was appropriate for God to perfect Jesus through the cross. 
I mean, that's the main point of the passage. What I'm getting at, suffering is uh, not something that brings you down. In fact, suffering is something which, in some sense, exalts Jesus highly. That's why I entitled my message this morning. I don't like my title, but it's the best I can. Avon, you know how much I labored to get a better title. But last week it was, lower is not lesser. This week is, uh, suffering doesn't mean second class. Okay? What I mean by that is just, Suffering doesn't in any way make him inferior. It doesn't make him substandard. It doesn't make him less. But suffering actually makes him greater. Alright, there's our first question. Easy question, I think. It was fitting to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. But now comes the next question. You start thinking about this. Why did Christ need to be perfected? Is that a good question? Maybe it's come across in your mind. If it was fitting for God to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings, you've got to ask, did Jesus really need to be perfected? I mean, we know that Jesus was sinless, right? In fact, it's interesting, and this is always comforting when this is, the, the, uh, the thing that we might battle with that is that, oh, maybe this writer thinks that Jesus was sinful. And, but then when you read the same writer, all Hebrews, there's no book in the New Testament that I know of that lifts high the sinlessness of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So, Jesus being made perfect is perfectly consistent with Jesus being sinless. Like, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 15, we read of how we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things that we are yet without sin. Or you read in chapter 7, verse 26, of how Jesus is a high priest. He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is unlike us. He's holy, totally innocent. You read in chapter 9, verse 14, how Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. Totally clean to God is how His sacrifice was. And then the book of Hebrews has so many passages that tell the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The implication is His perfect sacrifice was perfect because He was sinless in every form and fashion. And so the writer here has no thoughts of Jesus needing to be made perfect because He was defiled from sin. Something else going on here. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? I think the answer comes in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. You can turn over there if you will. It's another interesting verse. We'll get to it in a couple months, I'm sure. Where it says... Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Here you see Jesus learning something. You think about, well, is Jesus God? Yes. Is he omniscient? Well, yes, but in incarnation there's some limitations. But this isn't talking about his really intellectual limitations because the things that Jesus learned here weren't academic, rather they were experiential. In other words, Jesus learned obedience by experience. He learned what it was to obey even when life was difficult, even when your best friend abandoned you, even when the religious leaders and authorities of the day are coming down, crashing down against you, even when the political powers of Rome would cause you to capitulate. Jesus learned obedience from the things which He suffered. He experienced same things we experience. How it is hard to walk in the workplace as a Christian. How it's hard when you have friends abandon you, become unfaithful to you. Jesus learned these things. And this, by the way, is why He is such a great high priest. Because He experienced all the things that we have experienced. He learned obedience. And then the next one, look what it says there. And having been made perfect... He became to those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. But there's the key. It's having been made perfect. I think the having been made perfect links to Him learning obedience through His sufferings. I think there's a direct link there and I think that's the key to how Jesus was perfect. He was made perfect because He learned some things in the Incarnation by experience that He never would have learned had He been in heaven itself. And thus, in that sense, He was made perfect his perfection here, you might easily think about it as being fully confirmed as a sinless Savior. He was fully confirmed that the stamp of approval was upon Jesus, that He was perfected in that way, that God could forever lift the Messiah into the world, saying that, yes, this is one that was clothed in, clothed in flesh and blood. This is the one that faced all those temptations. And He's the one that faced it all, that, that we frail human beings face. And He went through, conquered, victorious, sinless. Jesus has been perfected and lifted high for all of us. All right? Back to chapter 2. My next question as I look at this text was, 
was this. comes in the first couple words. It was fitting for Him. It was fitting, right, for God, for whom are all things, through whom all things, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. What a strange way to think about God, isn't it? That, that something is fitting for God? I mean, we know what's fitting for us, right? Young boys, we have some young boys out there, right? We know that it's fitting for you to wash your hands before you eat, right? That's just the fitting thing to do. We know that it's a fitting thing for you to put on a coat before you go outside. How many of you have read mothers who said, put on your coat before you go outside? Right? You need to be taught these things. It is fitting for us, for our comfort, for our best if we put on a coat when we're going outside. Even the littlest of children, it's fitting for us to look both ways before we cross the street. Now some of those just might be for our hygiene, some might be for our comfort, and some things that are fitting for us might be for our safety. Because if we don't look both ways, we very well may be roadkill. Right? We need to learn that. It's fitting for us. But it's strange for something to be identified as being proper with God, isn't it? I mean, His, his ways are always proper, aren't they? His ways are always fitting. Aren't His ways always right? And of course they are. In fact, I think that's the thrust of the next phrase here. It was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. This is that God is the one who's the, the first cause and He is the final cause for all things. He, he's the final cause in the sense that everything, heaven and earth, were created for Him. The, the seas and the hills and the lakes and the forests and the animals, the mountains and the grass and the flowers, they're all for Him. And they all came through Him. It was He who spoke it into existence. And by His Word they were created. That's what Revelation 4 says. And whatever God does is fitting. He's the one that created it all. Whatever He does is fitting. But there's something here that it's especially fitting or it's entirely appropriate for God to bring the Messiah through such sufferings. And we could pull from passages of Scripture so that's the case. Isaiah 53 speaks of the the sufferings of the suffering servant. Psalm 22 anticipates the suffering of the Messiah. But here, really, in the context, it has to do with the angels. None of the angels have ever suffered like this. And the question that comes, how, how can Jesus then still be better than the angels? But the writer affirms that the sufferings of Jesus are appropriate. They didn't catch God by surprise. They didn't catch Jesus by surprise. They don't diminish the role of Jesus. They're perfectly appropriate. In fact, in some ways, the suffering of Jesus lifts him up and maybe even giving him a title of sorts. Because that's my next question. Because this is a strange word that comes about here. It was fitting for him, through whom all things. Through whom all things, bringing many sons to glory. Perfect here it is, the author of their salvation. What, what does it mean that he's the author of our salvation? Like did Jesus like um, invent it? Was he the, the Mark Twain of our salvation? Did he write it beforehand? I thought that was God the Father who predestined us before the foundation of the world. Was it Jesus? It was just in Him that He predestined us. But who, who's the author of this? Well, let's think about this word first of all. It, it says author. The American Standard has a footnote that says leader. It's good. ESV says founder of the faith. King James translates it. Any of you have a King James or New King James? What does it say? This is a great word. What does it say? King James, New King James people? Anybody? I've got to think. Greg, you've got a new King James. What does it say? Oh, you're snoozing. You're thinking about your baby, which might be born this week. I told Greg and Michelle before they came in, and I like to tell all pregnant women this, so pregnant women be aware, but kind of get down towards the end and say, I hope I don't see you next week. Greg, can you help us out? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. To perfect the... Chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 10. To perfect the captain. I'm sure you see it there once I say it. The captain of our salvation. He's the leader. He is the author. He is the founder. He is the captain. Literally, this word can be translated first leader. In other words, he's the one that stands in front of the army. 
He's the Eisenhower giving charge to the troops before D-Day, just right there on the front lines. He's the one who leads the charge. He is Davy Crockett on his, on his horse, mounting the charge. So he is. Some have even suggested the imagery of pioneer. I mean, he's the first one to go forward. He is the Christopher Columbus who sailed across the ocean as the pioneer of good ocean trade. Or, or he is the Lewis and Clark who expanded the borders of America to go west, right? Pioneering the way, mapping out the great frontier. That's who Jesus is. He is the one who's carried the way. It's used, boy, only like four times in the Bible, this word is. It's used twice in Hebrews, and we'll get to that other text. It's used twice in the book of Acts, where Peter, preaching, calls him several times the Prince of Life. He calls him the Prince and Savior. Meaning that he's, he's the one who's been exalted at the right hand of God. He is like the Prince. He's the Captain. He's the one who's leading us. He brought it to pass. We should follow after Him. And that's the same context of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Or we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus, our Captain, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our author of salvation in the sense that He's the one that paved the way for us. He did it through the sufferings of the cross, did it through the shame of the cross, and now He sits down as Prince at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So we ought to look to Him. Look to the One leading us. Another question I had when I came here, I said, where? and this one's, I think, somewhat easy. Maybe some audience participation in this one. But here's my question here, number five. Where is Jesus leading us? Where is He leading us? You probably see it right there. Where is He leading us? Someone shout out. Lead us to glory. Exactly right, Chuck. It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, for whom are all things. Here it is. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings. This is the aim. This is why, why Christ was perfected. Why Christ became the pioneer is so that He might bring many sons to glory. This defines who the everyone is in chapter 2, verse 9. Tasting death for everyone. It's, it's the many that He's going to bring into glory. So you picture it? Jesus bringing us into glory. Taking us in His arms. Scooping us up. Taking us, if you will, bring us into glory someday, present us before the Father, the church, holy and blameless and pure, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus does say somewhere that they are in my hand and Satan will no way snatch them out of my hand. He takes them and he carries them to the Father, to glory. Perhaps you want to watch a mother of an infant today, after church, right? Baby right there in the arms, right? Gentling, bouncing up the baby, caring for the baby. Right when it's time to go, placed in the car seat, bundled up just perfectly well, picked up, and you know maybe dad comes at this point to pick up. Hope guys, you're, you're at this point to pick up the car seat and to to bring that baby, put it into the car, strap it down, make sure that everything's secure, drive safely because you know you got a baby on board in the back of your car, driving home, coming out of the car, feeding, caring for the baby, putting the baby to sleep, giving a nice rest in the crib. For the nap, all done with the greatest of care. That's the idea here, what Jesus does. He brings many sons to glory. He's the good shepherd who brings his sheep into the fold. Isaiah 40, verse 11, prophesies of Jesus, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Jesus leads us, He carries us, He brings us into glory. The book of Hebrews is all about anticipating the glory. In chapter 4, the glory is described as rest. It's described as a place where Jesus has gone. He's passed through the heavens. In chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus is described as the forerunner who's entered within the veil to a place that we are going to go. He's preparing the way for us. Chapter 11 is filled with expressions of those who are living by faith, who are seeking a heavenly country. They are seeking a reward. They have a better possession and a lasting one. That's why they can deal with joy when people take away their earthly possessions because they're looking towards heaven. Have those who won't accept the release from prison 
chapter 11, verse 35, because they won't deny the name of Christ so they might obtain a better resurrection that is the second resurrection. Glory and life. In chapter 12, the writer describes the heavenly Jerusalem and just what it is. It's just a marvelous sight. The general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To God, the judge of all, myriads of angels. To Jesus, right, the one who's got the sprinkled blood. The sprinkled blood speaks better than, than Abel. And Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The spirit of the righteous made perfect. All these things in the heaven where we're going. That's what glory is like. And that's where Jesus is bringing us. We're told plainly in chapter 13 that we do not have a lasting city here, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And therefore, with that out in front of you, (laughs) here we go. This is all what Hebrews is about. Uh, Let's turn this on again here. We'll we'll fire it up. Hebrews is all about, I said fires up. You can tell me, what's the theme of Hebrews again? Jesus is better, so press on. So it is coming there. It's coming. It'll, It'll show. That's the glory for which we were created. It is the glory to which Jesus will bring us. So why was suffering, question number six, why was suffering the means of being perfected? Okay, That's another question I had here. I'm just thinking about, okay, it, got, it was entirely fitting for God, for who everything is, is there, but it was fitting for Him to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for Him to bring these sons into glory, to perfect Jesus, needed to perfecting somehow, and experiencing right this captain of their salvation. But, through sufferings. How is it that sufferings fits in here? Why was suffering the means of being perfected? Couldn't Jesus have been perfected another way? I mean, I think about maybe a divine pronouncement from heaven. Right? You remember at his baptism, there's a voice that came from heaven and said, What? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Couldn't God have equally said, This is my beloved Son who's perfect? Well, Jesus... My beloved son is up here. He's perfect. Why do you have to go through sufferings? Uh, could there not have been some coronation ceremony in heaven somehow that crowned Jesus the perfect one? Could, could Jesus not have lived this life of glory and be declared the perfect one? I mean, what about the king that came down, the Messiah the Jews were anticipating to come and rule and reign and conquer Rome? Yes, he's the perfect one who's established his great rule and reign upon earth. Couldn't he have been perfected that way? What about just an awesome display of power? Somehow just attributing to Jesus, yes, I'm the one who's perfect. Why, why, couldn't, why did it have to be through sufferings? I think the key to answering that question has to do with the word just before it, that it's the author of their salvation through sufferings. To save us and lead us and be our pioneer and captain, he needed to be like us. In fact, that's the point made in Two verses here in chapter 2, verse 14, which we'll look upon next week. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, right? Since we have flesh and blood, Jesus likewise took flesh and blood that he might conquer death by dying, is what it says. He had to go through our experiences that we go through, he had to go through them victoriously. Because our lives are lives of suffering. That's how it is in this life. Lives of suffering. Our lives consist of death. We're all meaning that day someday. The, the day we die. And that's what our life is. And so Jesus had to suffer like we suffer. And He had to die a death to help us to understand suffering, experience it, and conquer death on His way to perfection. In fact, I love how verse 17 puts it. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things. There was like no choice about this. If He was going to be the author of their salvation, He had to become flesh and blood. For Jesus to be Savior, He needed to be like us in all things. An angel could never save us from our sins. An animal could never save us from sins. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Only Jesus, who became flesh and blood, can be our Savior. In fact, turn over to chapter 10. I just want to show you how integral the the sufferings of Jesus was in His perfection. We read in chapter 10, verse 1, the law was just a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. It can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifice of the Old Testament weren't sufficient to make somebody perfect. But then down in chapter 10, verse 14, 
This is what makes perfect. It's the perfect offering. For by one offering, He has perfected, there's that word again, for all time, those who are sanctified. Notice the means of our perfection. The means of our perfection for our salvation is the offering of Jesus. That's a reference to the cross. It's a reference to His sacrifice. It's a reference to His death. It's through His death that we are then made perfect. And notice here it says, He has perfected for all times, for all time those who are sanctified. Now that's the next question. Because it leads nicely into my next question, which comes in verse 11. So go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. This is question number 7. I think we're on course. We're doing well. How does sanctification work is my question. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. So it describes Jesus as the one who sanctifies, describes us as those who are sanctified. So you say, how does this work? Each of these phrases are worthy of a topical sermon at some point, right? He who sanctifies. He sanctifies through sufferings. And we who are sanctified speaks about how it is that we are sanctified, right? The one who sanctifies is the one who cleanses us, makes us clean, washes us, purifies us, gives us a bath. The one who gives us a bath is Jesus. He washes us. He makes us clean by His death. And those who are sanctified, who's that? Those are the ones being cleansed. Those are the ones in the bath. Those are the ones being purified and being washed from your sins. I want you to see how it is that sanctification process works. It's not us cleaning up ourselves. A little child who's dirty and running in the mud doesn't clean up himself. I mean, we have a little, how old is David now? Two and a half? I mean, we're constantly wiping his face, wiping his nose, cleaning his hands for him because we have to, because he won't, he won't just volunteer and go take a bath. Now when we say, David, want to take a bath? <gasps> He's all over taking a bath. But he doesn't do it on his own. He needs someone help. He needs someone who sanctifies. And that is likewise. That's what Jesus, Jesus cleans us. He cleanses us. And how does he do that? He does that through the sacrifice of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Hebrews chapter 10, for by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, just a little bit before that, he says, For we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How are we sanctified? How are we made clean? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's how we're cleansed because He's the one that cleanses us. He's the one that sanctifies us. Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So in order for Jesus to sanctify us, He had to suffer, and He suffered outside the gate. The means of our sanctification, suffering, was the sacrifice of Christ. That's why angels can never save us. They don't suffer like Christ suffered. They haven't died for us, but Jesus suffered, and He died for us. That's how sanctification works. And I hope you see that just the sufferings of Jesus doesn't make Him second class, doesn't make Him inferior in any way. Rather, sacrifice is the very thing that's cleansed us from our sin. But I want you to notice here, how does sanctification work? Ultimately, it's God who does the work of sanctification. Look at, look at how this phrase can be read in verse 11. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are from one Father. It's a, it's a present, active, participle. Excuse me, what? Well, present means a continuous action and a participle. It just continues. It's a continuous action, but it's a, I'm sorry, it's a present passive participle. Meaning that it's, it's being done to us. We are being sanctified. It's, it's being acted upon us. You know the difference between an active, a direct object and an indirect object, right? Mary hit the ball, right? The ball is being hit by Mary, but Mary was hit by George, whatever. Mary's being acted upon. In our sanctification, we are being acted upon. So in the end, how is our sanctification going to happen? It's going to happen through the suffering of Christ applied to our souls. It's going to happen as we walk by faith. It's going to happen as, as we lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. It's going to happen as we run with endurance the race that's set before us. It's going to happen as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. It's going to involve some difficulty. It's going to involve some suffering. That's how God achieved our salvation. That's how God works out our sanctification. It's through suffering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. 
partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. He says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence as a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. That's how sanctification comes. It comes initially through the sufferings of Jesus. And then our sanctification comes through the sufferings that we deal with in life as God brings them upon us. But God is the one who brings those sufferings. God is the one that, that sanctifies us through those sufferings. So never... Never turn away the day of sufferings in your life. I met with several this week who in tremendously difficult times are just growing through it because they're trusting the Lord. We had a, a small group at the Reed's house. There's one who just shared about just some terrible things in her life. And yet God, she said, I wouldn't trade him for the world because they were the very means through which she was brought to God and through which she is growing to trust Him continually evermore. Don't despise your sufferings. That's how our sanctification comes. Alright, here's another question. Question number eight. Why in verse 11 does he talk about sanctification? I mean, he could have used different phrases here. He could have said, for those who forgives, for the one who forgives and those who are forgiven. But he doesn't say that. He could have said, for he who justifies and those who are justified. He could have said that. He could have said, for he who loves and those who are loved. But he doesn't say that. He says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Why do you use the sanctification word on that? I don't know. Okay? Total conjecture. Why? But, but I do have a feeling, though. I do have a belief. I think it's probably close. I think it's because it's calling to an understanding of the purity we have in Jesus. I mean, I think about Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that's all about sanctification. First of all, it's about the sanctification of Jesus, how pure and how mighty and how holy He is. And He's the one that sanctifies and cleanses. He's a great high priest who's accomplished something none of the other high priests have. They come before God with an offering to cleanse from sin, but Jesus, the sacrifice that He offers, was perfect. See, when Christ appears, the high priest of good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, as Hebrews says. Not made with hands, it's not his creation, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The writer of Hebrews then says, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will Jesus, who through the blood of the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? In other words, it's Jesus and his work which sanctifies and cleanses us before God. Jesus does what the law could never do. Bulls and goats could never take away sins, but it's only the sacrifice of Christ that cleanses. Therefore, as it says in chapter 10, verse 21, therefore, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The book of Hebrews is all about our sanctification through the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it says, walk in purity Press on. Walk in holiness. Walk in sanctification. That is the theme right here. Jesus is better, so press on. Press on in what? Not so much press on in your justification. Press on in your love. It's press on in your sanctification. Press on in your purity. Press on in your holiness. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue sanctification. Press on. All right. Another question, number nine. And these last couple will kind of zip through faster. What does it mean that we're all from one Father? That's verse 11. Another question. Both we, He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Now, the word Father there, if you have a New American Standard, which I preach from, it's in italics. It means it's not there in the original text. Rather, it's an interpretation the New American Standard puts on there. Which is good. I, I love the fact how the New American Standard says, okay, this word, just read it without that word, and it's literal, but I'm putting it in for a, a reason. The NIV translates this, we are the same family. And again, another interpretation. Father, family, same kind of idea. You see that. The ESV translates it, we all have one source. Maybe a little bit different. Yeah, pretty close. The King James versions do it well. They say, we are all of one. 
and it lets us to fill in the blank. We're just one with God. Family, source, what does it mean? Despite the various ways, in fact, um, one of the best ways to study the Scriptures, if you don't have access to the original language, is to read different versions. You can see how different people uh, come at things. And in some sense, yes, it is very much. We are from one source. But I think in verse 11, the last part of it gives us reason to see that he's talking about family. Because he says then, for which reason, because we're all from one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Then verse 12 and 13 speak about brethren, children, family language. So I think that that's why some of these translations come up with a family theme. There's a solidarity we have with Jesus. He is, as our captain, really our older brother. He's the one that's experienced everything first for us. That's why we're coming from one father, if that's what it is. We're one family, or even if we're one source, Jesus still is the first one in that. So I want you to think about Jesus, your older brother. How many of you had old, older brothers? Yep. Good. How many of you are older brothers? Okay. I was an older brother. But think about the oldest brother. At first, he's a cute little baby boy. Weak, and then he's a fun toddler. I love the day when uh, we put jeans on our children for the first time. He's cute. But as he grows up, things change. All of a sudden, he gets taller and he gets stronger. And his voice changes. He begins to shave. Then he begins to drive. And he goes off to college. He graduates. He gets a job, starts working hard. He has a wife, and soon he has a family of his own. Now picture the younger brother. The younger brother just watches all the stuff that takes place and is kind of prepared for for things taking place, can watch and see you know, what's going on. And he merely follows in his steps because his older brother, in many ways, is his hero. He looks and sees what he does and at times even looks to him for counsel. At times, the older brother can play a crucial role in his life, giving him some counsel of places that he's been and mistakes he's made and things that he has done. That's Jesus. He's our older brother because he's part of family. He is the forerunner, as Hebrews 6.20 says, who's entered heaven for us, leading the way for us. And Jesus then is going to bring us into heaven, as chapter 2, verse 10 says. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He'll bring us to heaven like any older brother will help his younger brother. Which brings up really another question here. I think that's what it means, Father, Jesus is our older brother. Question number 10. I've got two more left. Question number 10. Why is Jesus not ashamed of us? Why even mention that? Look at this, verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. The implication of this is this, that Jesus has good reason to be ashamed of us. Can you think of what caused Him maybe to be ashamed of us? It's because of our sin. I know of families where there is a brother where the family is ashamed of them. He's the one that, that got into drugs in high school and became an alcoholic and been involved in improper relationships. He's never been able to keep a job. Hasn't been responsible. He's gone through divorces. The black sheep of the family. It's curiosity that it's curious that the family is kind of ashamed of this boy. No pictures of him. He's never at the family gatherings because he's kind of shunned. You know families like that? You know people like that? Certainly. The black sheep. And, and in many ways, we in our sin... We are black sheep. We have every reason for Christ to be ashamed at us. We've sinned against the Lord. we failed to walk in purity. But God, in His wonderful grace, has loved us nonetheless. He's cleansed us through the blood of Christ, purified our souls, and is no longer ashamed of us because we're right before Him through the sacrifice of His Son. And there's no longer shame in coming to God because of what Christ has done for us. Think about it. He's not ashamed to call us brethren there's no shame in coming to God. Therefore, you know, heed, heed the things of, of Hebrews 4. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews chapter 10, which speaks about how let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us draw. He's not ashamed of us because of what Christ has done for our, our sins and wiping it clean. Alright, last question. A little bit of time on this. Number 11. How do these Old Testament quotes fit in? Because there are three of them. 
verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. This is Jesus speaking. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I think the overall thrust of these verses is clear. Jesus is our brother. He's proclaiming God's name in the midst of the brethren. God has given him children to care for, as it says at the end of verse 13. And I think the main point of these is that they assert the uh, assertion of verse 11. They support the assertion of verse 11 that we are brothers of Jesus. He's got these brothers. I'm going to proclaim your name, O Lord, in the midst of the congregation. I'm going to sing your praise. You've given me these children. They are mine. And he identifies with us through flesh and blood. Now the first quote comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. It's a, it's a messianic psalm. Prophesy the agonies of Christ. In his agony, Jesus is ready to stand alongside his brothers. The next two quotations are from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. That passage also has messianic overtones. You look in there, you can find the name Emmanuel seven times. It's close to the context of the prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. And they're more difficult to understand. Particularly verse 13, I will put my trust in Him. What does that mean? I thought Jesus was God. How does He need to trust God? He is God. Well... Let's just let's trace down that rabbit trail here a little bit because I think it will help us. Because the suffering of Jesus helps us. But if you are facing suffering today, I encourage you to look to Jesus and really think about the ways in which He has suffered. And I do think that the suffering of Christ helps us in all of our types of suffering. You have a friend who's abandoned you? Well, Jesus faced that. You're facing physical pain, health issues? Well, Jesus faced that. You're rejected by religious people. Well, Jesus faced that. You weren't understood. Jesus faced that. All kinds of suffering can be right there. In fact, even many ladies are reading a book, right? Counsel from the Cross, that was called? That's the next book. Comfort from the Cross. How many, how many ladies have read through the whole thing? Quite a bit of you, right? Just takes the cross of Christ, at least Fitzpatrick did, and just then applies it to all of the different ways of life we can find comfort in the cross. And we can find comfort here that Jesus said, I will put my trust in Him. Have you ever thought about it? Jesus is sinless, but how did He live a sinless life? It's interesting, when God put Jesus upon the earth, when Jesus, God Himself, became incarnate upon the earth, He lived in such a way so as to pattern for us our life. He suffered that He might leave an example for us, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, for us to follow in His steps. And so likewise, He also lived in a manner of how we're supposed to live. Darren read for us today, Matthew chapter 4. In the midst of temptation, how are we supposed to battle that? Take the Scripture out like Jesus did three times. He's not live by bread alone, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You're not put the Lord your God to test. You shall worship the Lord God and Him only, right? In those ways, overcoming temptation. Jesus modeled for us. And how is it that He modeled His life? You know, all the time, He was always submissive to His Father. Some astonishing verses in John John 8, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus submitted Himself to God in His life here upon earth. God submitted to God. And if God submitted to God, we certainly can submit to God. And as Jesus lived, He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting and relying upon God. Long before He was ever born, it was told the Spirit of the Lord to be upon Him. When He was baptized, He was full of the Holy Spirit, went about in the wilderness by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. When Jesus preached His hometown, He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Me. And when Peter summarized up the life of Christ in one sentence, he said that God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power. God's Spirit was upon Him and Jesus lived, conquered temptation by the Spirit. I think likewise, as we live, we also need to realize this. Jesus lived a sinless life not because He was deity, but because the Spirit helped him, empowered him, and he trusted and he lived appropriately. He lived as a model for the way that we ought to live. Willingly submit himself to the Father, living in the power of the Spirit, even through suffering. And I just say, church family, we need to do likewise. We also need to follow the steps of our older brother, steps of our captain, and put our trust in him. Well, that's my, my study this week, and that's how I've 
come about things. I trust those 11 questions are helpful to you. Put them together. I, I'm still not sure how to organize this text real nice and neat-like, but it does speak the same thing. Jesus is not second class because he suffered, but his sufferings actually is a thing that brought him up high and holy and magnificent. Well, we're going to close with one last song here this morning that speak about the, the, the incarnation of Christ, how He was meekness and majesty, how He was manhood and deity in perfect harmony, the man who is God. So meekness and majesty, and I trust that just you sing this, you'll sing it as a, uh, as a meditation upon the, the perfections of Jesus. It, it applies to Hebrews chapter 2 is really, really what it's about.